Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. This is Isaac. And we are joined today by Hillary Zedlitz. Hillary, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Hillary. I'm a PhD student at the University of Michigan, and I study political science and religion and politics. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And I, I really want to get into what you're studying, but I also want to talk about um, your experience in the grad student union at the University of Michigan, because I know y'all striked, st- struck. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> went on strike uh, during the pandemic, and I'm interested in your, in, in your experience of that. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm at the University of Michigan, and we have a grad student union, GEO. Uh, which stands for the Graduate Employee Organization. And we went on strike earlier this semester, the second week of the semester. We were on strike for, I think it was about a week and a half. It might've been two weeks. Over the summer, we started trying to negotiate with the university around its reopening plans around COVID, as well as um, some of our policing platforms that the university, some of the policies around policing the university has, has right now and hasn't gotten rid of yet are a bit tone deaf given what was happening over the summer. So our two major planks were uh, police reform and the reopening plan. And we went on strike and I think we were planning to stay for the long haul. I'm just a member too, so I I don't know exactly what was going on with the leadership. But the the membership was really kind of fired up about the reopening plan. Um, Our students were allowed to come back. The faculty and graduate students weren't given a universal option to work remotely which means that the university could have called us back to teach in a classroom in person at any point in time. And we weren't given access to universal testing, um, which were huge concerns with COVID. It, yeah, it was just not very well thought out. We were concerned about our students getting sick and also concerned about our staff members who were getting sick. The last time I checked, we've had seven staff members die since the beginning of the pandemic. And those names have kind of been buried. It's taken a lot of FOIA requests. So we went on strike and had really strong support from our union and uh, re-voted to continue when we weren't getting the results we wanted at the bargaining table. And instead of uh, bargaining in good faith, our university filed temporary restraining orders against all of the graduate union members and uh, filed an injunction. So we then had to take a kind of subpar plan in order to um, avoid a lawsuit. Notably, they hired the same law firm that has been holding up the Flint water crisis investigation. So it it was signaling a lot of really bad, bad faith bargaining, at least to the graduate student members. Wow, (laughs) that is really bad. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was really cool to get involved. I got involved kind of late in the stage. so I missed the planning portion of the, the planks. But to our knowledge, we were one of the first strikes that was striking on an abolitionist platform because we one of our platforms was to completely get rid of the campus police. That didn't happen, but there have been task force, of course, of course, to uh, address that situation. Um, there's a few uh, meetings that were planned to meet with our board of trustees members. That was pretty much the movement that was made on that uh, that plank, but it it was really awesome to be part of this like historical moment. And hopefully we see more strikes that take on that type of bargaining in the future. Cause that was, I think the intent of including that in our original platform. Yeah. Isaac, did you have a question? Did I cut you off? Uh, no, you're, you, I do have a question that might be helpful for folks who just 
are not familiar with why graduate students need a union or would have one. Like Hillary, could you just give us a breakdown of your point of view on the way labor is exploited at the graduate level in most universities? Sure. Yeah. So as a graduate student, you have to understand that if you're uh, pursuing a PhD, which most graduate students at research institutions are, you're putting your career on hold for five to seven years. And so it's important to know that you are like putting off some um, income in order to hopefully get larger income in the future. So it's a huge financial risk. Many graduate programs don't pay their graduate students a living wage. Despite the presence of a grad student union at Michigan, we are paid well below the living wage in Ann Arbor to the point where I live with four other graduate students in order to pay my rent. But there are other grad students at other institutions that are in many, like much worse situations. They also have to take out loans, which can add up when you include your undergraduate being four years and then seven years of a PhD. You'll never pay that back. Um, so from the financial end, um, our labor is exploited all the time. I, under my contract, cannot work more than 20 hours a week. And if I do, I can report it. At other institutions, uh, grad students are kind of worked until the work is done. And I think that's an incredibly important protection that we have that I wish other graduate students did have. There's also a trend to not give graduate students access to healthcare because you're not a, like a full employee. You're like a student and an employee. And that's awful. Um, seven years of your life is a long time to go without quality health care. And some of the uh, protections we get from our union include a quality health care package as well. Yeah, I think one of the... So having spent quite a bit of time in grad school at places without grad student unions, myself, <laughs> I know that one of the things I've observed at the University of Virginia, for example, is them, is departments of the humanities, especially halting hires on associate level faculty and replacing that teaching load with grad student labor that they can get at a much cheaper cost. Is that something that happens at Michigan still or has the union sort of protected y'all from some of that? Um, yes. So graduate students, at least in my department, I can't speak for every department, we're not allowed to teach solo classes until we become a candidate. So in your first roughly three years of the program, um, you're, you're teaching with a professor. Um, so the professor teaches the class and then you lead kind of discussion review sections on your own. Once you become a candidate, you're allowed to teach solo classes in the summer, but you have to opt into doing that. So there's a lot of protection in place to avoid kind of the curriculum design time that you have to put in, um, as well as the kind of administrative side of planning a course that for the most part has been relieved from the GSIs or GSI stands for graduate student instructor that has been removed from kind of our, our workload. There are other departments where you do teach the class and you do design it at the University of Michigan. But as far as I can tell, they still have some protections that other institutions don't have. And this is just for graduate students like this. Do you know if, do like adjunct instructors have some kind of union at Michigan as well? I, I remember thinking this is like the first time I'd heard of such a thing when, when you all went on strike. It was like in, in the fall, right? Uh, it's back in September. Yeah, in September. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, go ahead. We do. The, the lectures employee organization is our sister union on campus. And it's the, the union for the lecturers who are hired, basically adjunct. Um, they have some protections. They're, I think, newer than GEO. 
So they don't have the history and Michigan's a right to work state. So some of their contracting power has been taken away. Some of ours has too, but because of our history in this state, we have a bit more staying power. So they do have one. And as far as I can tell, um, it does function. I have not actually attended a, a Leo event, but it is present on campus. Yeah, um, I think part of why I was interested in talking to you about the strike is that uh, I think like uh, a lot of people who end up maybe in grad school or at least, I mean, people from my background, which is like upper middle class and kind of always expecting to go to colleges, um, are also really removed from like union activity and labor organizing. And so I know that uh, you have a, a different background than I do and that your parents have kind of like interesting stories in their own right. But uh, it's, I guess my impression, my impression is that you did not know much about labor organizing either. And so I was wondering like what your experience with that, what, like what, what you learned or just kind of what that experience was like for you. Sure. If the only prior experience I'd had was I did the Episcopal Service Corps with Carrie, which is how I know Carrie. And I worked with the seafarers unions a little bit whenever I'd report um, kind of a, an instance of their contract being violated in my role as a port chaplain. So that was the familiarity I had prior to uh, being in a union myself, coming from Texas. I was raised in Texas for 12 years and Arkansas for 12. And there's not many unions in either state. So I had no idea how it worked. I really appreciated our our graduate union leaders for the work they did to educate us as members on like what we were doing, the history of the labor movement and why this was important. For instance, I didn't know what a scab was until suddenly we were on strike and people were saying, don't scab. So if you don't know, a scab is someone who crosses the picket line, which then I was like, well, what's a picket line? So there was a lot of really small learning events throughout the entire strike of like, how do you make sure that your fellow grad students aren't scabbing and aren't teaching their classes um, how do you tell your undergrads who you're teaching like what you're doing and why it's important for them to support you? And I think it was a huge lesson in, in community organizing I hadn't seen before. We were getting donations from community members who were mad at the university for spreading COVID in Ann Arbor and learning how to manage community interactions as well as your undergraduate interactions and um, your faculty not being mad at you for missing class. I think it was it was really interesting to watch. This isn't a typical labor scenario necessarily in that it's not clear sometimes who the hierarchy is. Um, so while I know that the professor I work with could have reported me, it wasn't clear that other professors who are also my supervisors could report me. So there was a lot of kind of learning the ropes as we were going. And I don't know if I have a specific uh, like way to wrap that up nicely. I, I think it was kind of an experiential learning for me at least. And I really want to give kudos to our leaders who are also grad students themselves because I think they did an incredible job. Yeah, like COVID, like a lot of, I think, union activity in COVID is, has been so strange isn't the right word, but it, it introduces all of these new kind of variables into it. Uh, last spring when kind of everything was just about to get shut down, the St. Paul, uh, Minnesota public school system also went on strike. And so the kids were out for two weeks and then they had, what do you call it, uh, spring break. And then the next week, uh, literally everything got shut down for COVID. And one of the things that was really interesting about that is like, Whereas in your situation, like the the bargaining was t taking place to kind of keep people safe from COVID. But in the St. Paul school systems, 
a lot of the bargaining, they had to kind of almost back off some of what they wanted, which is all stuff for kids uh, who needed help or additional services because because of COVID. Like if, if they didn't uh, do it, the kids weren't going to be served and they would be in a, a worse position later on to be able to you know, advocate for the kids and for themselves. So it's, it's really interesting to think about how, you know, these two things kind of match up because my daughter and I were out there marching with the, uh, <laughs> with the teachers and a lot of them were like, well, we have to go back. And suddenly it becomes this question of like, are you a scab for wanting to go back to take care of kids? Or do, are you willing to risk, you know, these kids falling immeasurably behind because of this? And, and I don't know that there's a clear answer to either one of those, but it's, it's interesting just to see how that happens kind of before COVID and then in the wake of COVID or in the midst of COVID uh, with, your, with your all situation. That was definitely something that was brought up multiple times to shame us into accepting an agreement from the university, saying our students are paying for these classes and you're not giving them the service they're paying for, was brought up so many times. And I think what really kept us going and in spite of the shame that we were experiencing for not teaching, we are instructors, we want to teach for the most part, that's true. I... I think what kept us going was the realization that we also don't want our students to get sick. I I had COVID back in March and it was the worst experience I've ever had. I have asthma and I thought I would wake up the next day and not be able to breathe for like three weeks. And there's no way I wanted any of my students to experience that. And that was, that was true for my classmates too. So even though we were experiencing this tension of really wanting to see our students. It was the second week of class. That was the impression we were leaving on our students that we we just don't teach. And that's not true at all. And I think that as the semesters progressed, at least with my class, my students have recognized that the reason I wasn't there is because I didn't want them to get sick. Um, And that because of these like negotiation failures on the part of the university, many of them still got sick. So it's very frustrating to see that the result of the strike wasn't what we wanted. Um, For this semester, I might add that next semester, all of our demands have been put in place, but we were not given credit for any of them. So I do think there's kind of tension um, among every grad student. And it was hard to to make sure that your classmates weren't going to scab the next week because they felt guilty. But I I think we did a really good job. Yeah. And and I just want to be clear. I think it might have sounded like I was being... (laughs) anti-union oh, no. my little yeah but I, I but you know it's interesting I think w- when you're talking about like things being put in place later right now I find it really interesting that a lot of the calls here in Minnesota are like get kids back in school to help their learning and the takeaway from that is it's just like oh you're just anti-labor that's what it is you're anti-working class people um it doesn't matter what side they're on if they're striking for something we don't want that if they if they're doing their job well, we don't want that either we just want to make sure that we're controlling you so Yeah. And Brian, I didn't think you were either. I I think the situation's different. Like my students aren't young children whose parents need to work. My students are people who can afford to pay tuition at the University of Michigan. It's a very different audience. I I, I do think you're right that different unions have had to negotiate COVID into their (laughs) negotiations very differently. Yeah, we just have to we have to cover all our bases for any cancelable uh, um, opinions or takes. I just got to make sure because I can't be the first one canceled. I can't. The, the other two, you all can you all can get canceled. That's fine. But I need this. I need to be on this. Brian's still the only one in denial about the inevitability of cancellation in this in this age. I'm, I'm like I'm I'm balancing all the all the the plates right now. It's just like don't come after me, YA audience. Don't come after me, labor movement. I'm friends with all of you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Brian is pro labor. I'm just going to make that statement. Thank you. Right Brian now. is definitely pro labor. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it here first. Yes. I'm sure I will say something now later. You're going to be canceled by all the anti labor people. <laughs> that, There's no fine. win. That's fine. Yeah. I can take it. Those people, you know what? Die mad, as they say. Hillary, I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about some of the greater inequity going on at, at the University of Michigan when it comes to the fight that the grad student union has had versus, say, programs that have gone unaffected or programs who are receiving the you know most dramatically uh, expensive sort of COVID protocols, i.e. sports and things like that. Yeah. So I might want to add that uh, I forgot this already, but while the grad students were striking, so were the residential assistants or residential advisors and the, the dining hall workers. And those are two groups that are not protected by a union um, and many of them face being fired. So they joined us on our picket line and we have been helping them kind of negotiate either building their own union or working with the university to not get them fired as a result of helping us. So I do think even among the students, there was this inequality in protections. I knew that, you know, if I got in trouble for striking the grad, the geo would take the legal uh, fees for me and um, the dining hall workers and the residential assistants did not have that kind of protection and they did it anyway, which was super brave. We've noticed this semester, at least, that um, athletes are tested <laughs> constantly um, and have had uh, access to at least the, um, the quick rapid tests at a rate that wasn't true for our students until very recently, I think in the past few weeks. You had to sign up as a normal student or graduate student to be randomly selected, which if you have to sign up to be randomly selected, that's not a random selection process, to be tested. And that was the only surveillance monitoring we had. Um, students were afraid to get tested on campus because the quarantine housing conditions were abysmal. To my knowledge, the students have never received pillows. During the middle of the strike, they were given microwaves to appease them. We called them appeasement microwaves because their food was coming to them cold and they didn't have anything with them. So students would not go to the campus health center and instead would go to urgent cares around Ann Arbor to get tested, which inevitably still landed them in quarantine housing. But it was, a harder, it was harder for them to just access testing and feel like they would be taken care of if they got sick. So a lot of the symptoms were hidden, um, which then led to outbreaks across campus. That hasn't, there have been outbreaks among the athletes that I, at least as far as I know, I think this week they're not allowed to practice because there's some percentage of an outbreak among the football team, but they have access to the testing in order to determine that more than 2% of the football team and athletes and trainers do have COVID. And that's not true for students until Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving, students were allowed to sign up for testing because then they were sent home. I do want to kind of dig down into the football thing because it's it's also a labor issue in and of itself. Um, the Big Ten was the only major conference or was the first major conference in the summer to announce that it was not going to play a season. The university presidents made that decision. And then basically athletes and coaches, beginning with the University of Michigan and Jim Harbaugh, stood up and said, 
Uh, we can do this safely if you just let us. Oh, I'm like, pretty oh, sure Ryan Day. It, it was. I'm pretty sure it was Ohio State. I'm not going to get into it, but I'm pretty sure Justin Fields and Ohio State is the one that started that. But anyway, no, no. I, I'm telling you, the first the first coach that stood up and said we have a plan if you let us implement it was Harbaugh. It wasn't Ohio State. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the fact checkers on that, but keep going. Fine, Google it, Google it. But here's the thing. So the SEC stayed with their foot on the gas. We're just going to go ahead and do it. Uh, the Pac-12 followed and um, followed the Big Ten and said, we're not going to have a season. And then there was uh, a lot of pushback. And ultimately, what, what got the Big Ten to say that they were going to have a season is this promise that they would have, they would test their athletes every single day. And they said, it'll work because we're going to test every day and we'll be able to uh, catch breakouts before they happen because we're going to pay more money for these rapid... Uh, response tests. And we're at a point in the Big Ten season where Michigan shut down, Ohio State shut down, Wisconsin's been shut down to the point where Ohio State, the best team in the conference, may not even qualify, may not play enough games to qualify for the Big Ten championship and could potentially miss out on the playoff. But um, it it's it's just the ultimate irony here that, you know, the Big Ten stance started with with Michigan's coach coming out and saying, hey, we can get this right. And now they're shut down anyway. But but even further on another level of labor discussion, one of the reasons why um, the NCAA would not entertain any discussions about putting athletes in a bubble is because if you put college football players in a bubble and say not Olympic sport athletes at the school. Like we're not going to put the cross country team in a bubble, but we're going to put the University of Michigan football team in one like the NBA did. Uh, unless you offer that to every single other student, then um, you're separating them out in a way that challenges this claim that they have to amateurism and them being student athletes. So that later in court... Um, Athletes who are trying to collectively bargain have also many football players have also tried to get a union type arrangement going, uh, but have largely failed. Like basically, Michigan has to be careful what it offers to students and what it offers to football players because they don't want to have to end up paying the football players at some point down the line. So even in the discussion around the athletics, um, there's a very careful power balance for the university that it has to maintain. Also. I'll admit you were right, Isaac. I looked it up, uh, but I, I maintain that Ohio State probably did have some kind something to do with it. Um, but I think also it, you're, you're, we're also getting to an area a weird thing of where um, thinking of student or football players as you know laborers or unpaid laborers in, in one way or another. Um, in order to, I guess, have tape or whatever to get to the NFL, they're put in a situation where they're not being paid, they're not being compensated outside of scholarships, obviously. Um, so they get put into a situation where the coach, you know, is saying, well, you need to be playing. So they have to be putting themselves, like their their health on the line, or else A, they lose their spots if the other, somebody else picks it up, or B, they don't get a chance to go on kind of to the next level, which is probably what a lot of them had been kind of preparing for anyway. So it puts them in this weird thing where they have to actively advocate against their self, that really advocate against their own self-interest from a health point of view. Um, and, it, and it gets blurred because, whatever, it gets blurred up with ideas of like teams and, you know, this kind of the bullshit idea of like sacrifice your body for the team that comes through a lot of these college sports. And it, it makes them basically, like I said, advocate against themselves in a way that makes them think that they are adv advocating for themselves. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's, it's, it's maddening. 
Yeah, I think student athletes should 100% be unionized. Yes. That's not a new take I've had, though, either. I thought that since my undergraduate days at the University of Arkansas. But watching this fo- the issue with football and testing unfold simultaneously as the, the strike, we were in the middle of a meeting when the Big Ten announced that they were going to test football players every single day. We were in a meeting where our university was saying, we don't have the capacity to do that. And that was so frustrating to watch it unfold. And also to know that your like coaches and staff were putting these students in a very weird position because do you stand up to your coach when your coach is also marching um, and leading marches for football to be um, like brought back? Um, no, you probably don't. And so it was it's really frustrating to watch that unfold at the same time and realizing that our goal was to keep our students safe and then by opening up football and other other sports events, uh, that was that was working counter to what we wanted because those students are also, those athletes are also our students. Because it doesn't matter. I, I, we do not have to get off on this tangent of mine, but I'm still going to make this point because it doesn't matter for the coaches, right? They can they can screw up royally. I mean, Hugh Freeze is the best example, right? He or One of the best examples. The fact that they can mess up and they can do every single thing wrong and two or three years later, they're still going to be in demand. But if, if a player puts their, you know, put, goes forward and, and takes a step and tries to act, tries to advocate for themselves and other players, they're going to be gone. And they, they may surface in a, in a different low, lower division of football. But these coaches have all the power and they get shuffled around. And then they, they, they end up at a friend of the show, Liberty University, and get accolades. And he's going to turn that into going from somebody who paid for prostitutes for himself and other uh, players possibly to another big job in the SEC. So it's, it's like they have no power. Um, and, and a union you would think would help, but I, I just don't, I don't know if I ever see that happening because they'll, they'll smash it beforehand because they'll say, if you join it, then you can't play on the team. Yeah. Don't, I'm going uh, to stop talking about this now. I'm going to get all fired up. <laughs> you're, sorry, but just to clarify, because I, I don't want our very famous podcast to get sued by Hugh Freeze. Um, oh, sorry. Famous oh, litigious man. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we could just, can just bleep that out, bleep that out and the name of the school? No, it's no, not that. It in. It's not that. You just accused him of the wrong thing. It was oh. Rick Pitino <laughs> who hired prostitutes for recruits for his basketball oh, team okay. in Louisville. Hugh Freeze got in trouble for using his old Miss issued cell phone to set up uh, meetings with hookers. So, oh, close. Well, okay. okay. I was there. Let's, I was in the neighborhood. I would like to Allegedly. use the term sex workers from now on. Oh, it's yes. not their fault that coaches are awful. Yes. That is true. Yes. Yes. So, but I think yeah, this even goes back to the NBA, right? Because they also attempted to go on strike during the, uh, um, after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin. And ultimately, you know, we didn't get into this on our Thanksgiving pod, but. I guess part of what the trend we're seeing here is the way that laborers are pitted against each other and, and pitted against the institutions that they have or that they serve their financial problems and the nature of how their their sport or their labor is commodified. So, you know, the NBA players were in favor of shutting down the season and uh, the mainly because they wanted the owners to make greater concessions for racial justice and and all of this stuff because as we've already pointed out on the pod most of the owners are terrible are not nice people and basically what happened is Barack Obama went in there and convinced them not to strike because the owner said we're going to have a billion dollar shortfall if y'all don't play and we will lock you out cancel the collective bargaining agreement and lock you out and take that 
revenue out of your share of our revenue split, which right now is actually in in the favor of the players. They have a greater revenue split than the owners do. And so the basically Obama went in there and said, y'all can kiss a billion dollars and potentially more billions over a number of years. Uh, goodbye if you strike. And so just as more and more things come out about Obama because of his biography coming out, like the Skip Gates thing today where he said a lot of really dumb stuff. It's just... He's also a notorious union buster. So yeah. uh, tough, tough yeah. couple of weeks for, for Obama. Also, but a great couple of weeks yeah. for ethereal bisexuals. <laughs> there you go. I'd, I'd also like just to, to, to acknowledge the, the fact that uh, Kerry invited Hillary on and we immediately started talking about sports. The last time we talk, started talking about sports, uh, Kerry is like, well, I have a work thing. I'm, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Well, also, I, I know that Hillary doesn't really Care. follow sports. <laughs> Not really. So, apologies. Well, but I, I, I think it's like, gymnastics. I can follow gymnastics, but I think I've actually followed the litigation and the politics of USAG than anything else. I can talk about that, but uh, I don't actually follow football or basketball. Well, but when we're talking about universities and and labor, it's like the most profitable form of labor that universities oh, have. Um, so it, you know, the the conversations are bound up all throughout COVID with uh, graduate students and you know, and and athletes like, and whose labor is recognized as la- as actual work and whose isn't. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. We've no- we noticed that too in bargaining. We were told, well, you're just a grad student. You're a student in the middle of bar- like trying to negotiate to end our strike. And when the strike was over, they're like, well, get back to work, you employee. Um, so yeah, they. It's been an interesting. It's interesting to watch these negotiations that happen with students that hold multiple roles because athletes hold multiple roles as well. Hmm. Well, I'm also interested in hearing about uh, what you're studying. And uh, you said that you, when, when we lived together, you had just finished studying some very intense stuff about religious extremism, but you said you've switched recently. Yeah. So in undergrad, I studied religious extremism um, in comparative politics. So I'd look at uh, terrorist groups around the world during my year of service with the Episcopal Service Corps. Um, it was during the election year, and my name is Hillary, and I was working in Seattle in a port with a lot of um, international seafarers. And so they bring up politics all the time, and I talked about American politics almost every day for a full year. And <laughs> during the like fun lead up to the actual uh, election day, and then the awful letdown that election day was, and then the rest of the year. And during that year, I realized... Hillary witnessed me drinking an entire bottle of wine on election night 2016. (laughs) Yeah, I felt really dumb being like, it's going to be okay to our entire house. And then like looking back this last election day, I was like, wow, I was such a jerk (laughs) to all of our housemates when I said this would be okay because I am not okay. Yeah, but during that year, I realized that all of the things that I studied internationally, I could also study in the United States. It's a bit more covert, I think, uh, kind of the religious uh, extremism, political violence, although you could argue that that's no longer true. So I switched to studying American politics. And now I am currently researching non-religious Americans and their political behavior. Yeah, I have a few other projects, but that's my main one. So like non-religious people are... um constantly uh, the topic of, of clergy and other uh, 
very religious people. And so like, how, how do you define that, I guess? I mean, I mean, it might just be as simple as they don't have, have any kind of religion, but it seems like the quote unquote nuns, as they get called a lot, are not yes. quite that monolithic. Right. So that's actually my research is that this group is not this like same, like you can't say all nuns are Democrats, although they do certainly lean more liberal than uh, their religious counterparts. So part of my work is trying to, to uh, break this group up into the subgroups that actually um, matter for them. So I don't understand why we uh, immediately loop the atheists with the people in surveys who say none of the above. It's a very different type of identity. So I, part of my work is kind of uncovering, like, how can we better measure this group in a way that's actually true to who they feel that they are? And not just saying like, oh, the nuns, as if that explains everything you need to know about the people in this group. Because there are individuals who've left religion for political reasons. Um, there are people who've left religion for trauma reasons. <laughs> and there are people who were never raised in religion who are in this group. And they have different socializations that are super important for how they live their lives and how they vote, which is where my research comes in. So that's what I'm working on now. So right now I'm in the conceptualization phase, doing a, a lot of preparation to do field work. I was supposed to do field work over the summer and that obviously got shut down because of COVID. Um, so trying to figure out a new way to do that same work to build kind of survey questions that better address this group than just saying like, oh, you're this in this one category, the residual category. Yeah, because it's like with, there's a weird thing that happens, I think, when churches have this conversation. Um, and I don't want to steer us too far into that world, but, you know, the... Where it, there's an assumption that they used to be a part of us that that always kind of is just like I just don't get because what you're saying is no there's all kinds of these reasons some people did leave but I think there's a weird assumption uh, and Isaac and Carrie I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too that we're going to get those people back <laughs> the church is somehow going to going to figure out a way it's going to be through a new digital campaign or something like that whatever I, I don't want to go too far down that road either because I'll get myself in trouble but I think that you know there's a way of like we're going to fix this when I don't know that it's actually fixable, especially with what you just described as like people who maybe have left for really good reasons or were never part of it anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I have another question to ask Hillary, but I, I I'm also... ignore that one. Just go ahead. Yeah. No. Well, when Thank you, you say like for... the church, the church responds by being like, we're going to, we're going to get them back as if these people have always been a part of us. It's always just kind of interesting, uh, just personally in my life, because my dad was like a like raised completely non-religious and skipped like an entire Christian subculture of like the eighties and was like an adult convert at 40. And it's like, the, he, he didn't convert because any church like successfully got to him. He converted because he was married to my mom who was a Christian and who eventually started going to church again. Uh, so it's just, I just think that churches have a really simplistic understanding of how people leave and, and come to faith. Right. And Hillary, I'm, I'm interested because I know something about your personal story. Um, if, if your relationship to religion has affected uh, what you're interested in studying at all. 100%. I definitely fall in the category of none right now because I don't actually know what I believe or where I would fit. So some of the like questions I have are, are also about like who I am as a person, which you're not supposed to do research like that, but I think some of the best research that's personally motivated, or sorry, some of the best research is personally motivated. I do think that 
it's been interesting to navigate from being in the Episcopal Service Corps. I was probably the least religious in the house. Carrie can say if I'm wrong, or at least the least devout of that year. Uh, we would sit around at the dinner table and have conversations about theology, and I would just be quiet because I, I feel like I have nothing to say. And I think leaving that space where it was religion and spirituality all the time to being in grad school where everyone around me is the absence of religion and spirituality all the time for the most part um, has been an interesting kind of switch. And uh, my faith journey, I think, has been reflected in what I'm researching as well, realizing that um, I only know part of the story. I only know what well, my story for this like monolithic group that's not so monolithic. And trying to figure out like how have other people gotten to the same spot? Because I know so many people in my life who also say the same thing. Like they're just not sure what their religion is. So I don't know if I answered your question, Carrie <laughs> um, or Brian. What I will say is there is a political scientist. This is what I did want to say. There's a political scientist, Michelle Margolis, whose book came out a few years ago, where she talks about this interaction of um, kind of life events, politics, and religion. Um, and finding that some of the patterns that sociologists have historically looked at, for instance, when um, people get married and have children, because we're pushing that later and later, we're also seeing people come back to religion in a different way or manner than we did historically. So typically, we see people leave religion when they're in college age or young adulthood, um, and then they come back when they have children. But because Americans are having children later and later, that returning is happening at less rates than they have previously. And she found that this is having an effect on political choices and that politics is actually affecting which churches people opt back into. Um, so if you were raised into a Republican household um, and you were a very conservative Christian, and then you left and questioned for a while, got married, had children and came back, you're more likely to select a liberal church um, if your politics shifted in that time, then you would a conservative church. So there's been some really cool research on how politics is actually impacting religious identification in a way that social science didn't think was possible 20 years ago. I wonder if that's also like sort of conversely true, you know, in 2016, I guess for for the right, you know, there's this big narrative about how evangelicals have been the strongest uh, voting bloc for Trump. And even though I guess in 2020, you know, maybe that changed a little. Um, I guess I, I'm wondering, you know, if that's true for people who are coming back to religion, that they might let politics be more of a motivator for the sort of church that they chose. How, what role, like what sort of trend have you seen 2016 to 2020 or even before that about already religious folks who are being becoming more vocally political than they have in at least in overt ways than uh, in decades past. Yeah, I haven't, I've seen the data from 2016, but I haven't actually looked at 2020 yet. So this is just my conjecture. I thought that we'd see a lot of movement of some subset of evangelicals to either not voting. So we'd see a lower share, just not vote out of being torn between who to vote for or even switching to the other side. And instead, I think we've seen kind of a doubling down of evangelical coalition with Trump. Um, and perhaps that was kind of my optimism I, and who I follow on Twitter. Um, I follow many ex-evangelicals. And so I think perhaps I was just hopeful. But instead, we've seen kind of a doubling down on their candidate and who's righteous, um, the righteous candidate, I should say. And has, that's led to kind of more support for President Trump than in, 
in the past from this group. I have no idea where we go from here, though, in terms of like what the election would look like four years from now. Um, I don't know if you'd see a, still a stable voting block for the Republicans from the evangelicals. Dep- I guess it depends on the candidate. So I do think that's a really interesting group. That group's like caught most much of the focus in political science for religion and politics research. And it's one of the reasons why I don't research them, because there are smarter people doing that work than me. Uh, and instead, I'm, I do the flip side. Hillary, if I could just follow that up, because I, I need to know the answer to this for my own personal <laughs> emotional well-being. Um, okay. When you're talking about political science and, and how long it takes to study a trend, how much of our emotional health should we be pinging on the outcome of the Georgia Senate elections? Like, is it too early to notice if maybe some of that block is falling away? Or is it like, you know, what exactly is that going to tell us just a couple months after the general election? Yeah, I do think um, Georgia's been a really interesting case because. I think it's suggesting to a lot of political scientists, again, that's my discipline. I'm just going to keep calling us out. Um, It's suggesting to us that we should have been paying attention to state um, level politics a lot earlier, and we don't do a good job at that. So I think that while Georgia might, there might be some support for this voting block kind of disappearing in Georgia, I don't know if that will be true for every state, um, because it seems like that like Georgia's had such a special experience this past year of uh, voter, like <laughs> increased voter registration drives and turnout, um, trying to mobilize all these people who've never voted before in a way that is not occurring in other states. And it could, but it's a lot of time investment and money investment that I don't know we've put in in other places. So while I do think like, it's great to take hope from places where you can find hope. And if Georgia is that for you, then go for it. Um, but also know that if Georgia does like switch um, and it becomes more democratic fully in all of its elections, that's an indication that there's a lot more work to do. Um, so it's not a, this is good and I'm going to just go rest now. It's, this is good. I'll go sleep for a day and then figure out where I need to engage in the future. Heads up back to branch squad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy, I can't think about them right now. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so you, Hillary, you said that there are other factors for nuns that you've been trying to categorize about what motivates them as far as a, a voting block or as a spectrum of voters. So I, I guess I'm curious what those are. Do you mean like income level, education level, like uh, racial or ethnic background? What exactly are those alternative things if religion isn't a part of them? So that's a great clarification question. I actually still think it has to do with religion, um, but it's a, a way that scholars haven't measured for. So this is a really deep dive into religion and politics literature, but we typically measure religion three ways belief measures, behavior measures, and then what's called a belonging measure. Um, And that's like how you affiliate. So for nuns, we'd say like they don't belong anywhere, but we're seeing these groups crop up around the world um, where non-religious individuals can gather and create ties in a way that would suggest they do belong to one another. And my like work focuses on this group, um, these groups that gather. um, And if they kind of develop the same ties that you would see in a, in a church or a mosque or a synagogue in a way that's politically important. So that's what my work is doing. So I think of, for instance, the Sunday Assembly, which started in the UK, or I can think of in Seattle, there was the Seattle Atheist Church. 
they gather every Sunday and or they did before COVID and hear talks and sing music, um, just non-religious talks and music. And I think that's a very similar pattern and socialization that occurs in churches that is important for having political conversations, figuring out who you want to support and what you believe politically. Um, so that's what I meant by these other factors. So they're still tied to um, this idea of a congregation, but it's not necessarily motivated by a religious belief. And that that's tough for churches right there. That is tough for churches because a lot of the the rhetoric that you hear from churches or people that are kind of in the roles that, you know, that I'm in too is the fact, well, they're just, they just want to stay home. And they, they don't want to be engaged or, you know, whatever it is. Like, there's all of these reasons. And it's just like this intentional or maybe unintentional kind of blinder that they put on. So that is that is just like, whoa, man, churches, you, you, yeah. you, you messed get, up. This might get me canceled, but my favorite group, <laughs> I'm it. just going to go ahead and call it out. My favorite group of kind of atheists who've done this, this kind of intentionally gather, um, have actually co-opted religious symbols for political aim, and that's the Satanic Temple. So I don't know if you saw Hail Satan at all. It's a great documentary. I'm obsessed with this group. I think that they're so fascinating because at its core, they are non-religious individuals who believe in the separation of church and state, and they have taken these religious this religious imagery attached to Satanism and have co-opted it in order to win court like court decisions in the Supreme Court. They're so fascinating. Um, but I think they're the most extreme example of this behavior that you can see because they gathered together for an inherently political reason. Um, and, and you see them having political outcomes and they claim to be a non-religious religion. Um, so I think they're really cool. Aren't there like Jedi? Isn't there like a Jedi religion in, in, uh, in Europe or something like that too? Something, something similar. Yeah. Yeah. Like the uh, college Quidditch teams that are popping up, are they going to be next? <laughs> yes. Oh, I was in a high school Quidditch team, so um, <laughs> that would track <laughs> my experience. Texas's Quidditch team won the College World Cup like four years in a row. Hook them. <laughs> I was Why? so bad, they just put me at the, I was a keeper, so they just put me at the goalpost and said, don't run. Um, <laughs> so that was my job. Wow, I want Ted Cruz to have to answer for the fact that Texas has a championship in Quidditch before it's had one most recently in college football. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, we also uh, just won a championship in volleyball, so welcome. <laughs> Which is, I care about that sport, so. So, I, okay, just because I am really interested in this category of belonging, can you help me understand how in the political science theory and, and discussion, this is different than you know, coming together for some sort of like atheist church group, like the one you mentioned in Seattle is different than a bunch of nuns joining like a gym. What, you know, is it, is it just a type of gathering that sort of simulates uh, a religious sort of um, spiritual component or is it any type of gathering in a large enough group? Like break that down a little bit more. Sure. You touched on the fuzzy part of my theory because I haven't figured this out yet, but I'll uh, tell you what I think right now. So this Great. is true for today, whatever date today is that we're recording. So I do think there's a like a ritualistic component. Um, so belonging from, these are two social psychologists whose name I can't remember. Oops, bad. I'm a bad academic. They say that belonging is kind of a, a, a tie that you have that's habitual and that you know will be repeated into the future. And so I think that's an important component of this religious belonging that we would see. And then some sort of ritualistic tie that kind of mirrors what we see in, in a religious service. 
Um, I think that's an important component. There are scholars outside of political science who would disagree with me. Um, so I'm thinking of a few, there were a few uh, master's students at Harvard Divinity School that came out with a report about um, how CrossFit is taking the place of religion. I have no idea what to do with that. Um, and if I were to bring that into political science, I might get laughed at in the middle of a presentation. But I do think it's an important question for these spiritual groups that are being replaced by these other activities. And I don't know if it's one that I can really answer. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so you're talking about the sacred, uh, the sacred something lab, maybe just called the sacred lab at, at Harvard. Um, yeah. Mm. They just had that big New York Times profile about how um, MDivs are getting hired to go be corporate chaplains. So okay. that really that don't, struck. Don't I? I felt something in my soul that I that was ugly. Yeah, can you imagine uh, going to Amazon and like trying to help people cope with getting paid shitty wages? Well, it's not only that. It, it this is like oh god, this is like this is like capitalism taking over like. Maybe not even taking over, but it's like everything, like your job is supposed to be everything that you already have. And, you know, religion, faith or whatever has always been outside. But now this is companies like trying to co-op that and say like, also part of your spiritual life can be tied into this job that you do at Google or wherever it is. We don't want to be sued by Google. So some other nameless company, whatever. But like, like it, it's like, it's insidious. Like this is something, I want to do a whole episode on this. So we don't have to really go into it. But that that idea of like somehow tying faith or our sense of well-being and our sense of worth into the job and into this thing that you have is just... It, awful. I, I mean, awful. So anyway, carrying on. Like a dystopian novel waiting to happen. And um, every single person... I, okay, I'm just going to go in. It doesn't matter. Every single person in, in these groups, like if you look up their bios, they look like people that wanted to be worship pastors or something like that, but just couldn't really make the move. And they also kind of wanted to be like UUs, but really couldn't make the move. So they kind of like fell somewhere in the middle. Like that's what they look like. They're these people that I don't think really have any kind of actual belief system. They just think, hey, they're they're entrepreneurs, which you see in, in, in like I said, in the more evangelical churches where these people, whatever, with their hair and all this other stuff, I might just be bitter that I don't have that vibe going. But when you when you take a look at what they're trying to do, it's like the most baseless, shallow load of shit that I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, is this Fight Corner? Um, but I, I, I think that counts as Fight Corner today. <laughs> I mean, it really when, is. But when Brian sees someone who has hair, he thinks you piece <laughs> of shit entrepreneur. <laughs> I, you capitalist scum. Where'd you get that hair? You probably paid for it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay, not. I, that I was have not a the takeaway. Take on it than that, which is that the MDiv uh, job market is so stressed that people are like, "I need a job, and so I'll go and like do what I can get paid to do." Maybe with this, with this uh, degree that is supposed to be equivalent to the kind of professionalization that you get in an MBA or a law school degree. Like, I think it's just a matter of the market drying up in some places like around Harvard where that kind of job just isn't as available as it used to be anyway. But, but you're saying, but you're going, oh God, I don't, we, it's a time to go yet. But it's like one of those things where it's like you're saying you're, I can't even talk. Like I, I've, I've like, I've finally been broken. You're saying you're taking this thing though and you're either watering it down or completely repurposing it to, to feed into this other thing. This like capitalism uh, business type thing. And, it, and it's like, I think the core of it is like wanting to help people cope and to find meaning in their life. But like doing it through a job just like seems like fundamentally insane to me. So Blame anyway. the bosses, not the workers. That's my take. There you go. Fine. Hillary, back to you. I 
just going to say, I, I feel like we came full, <laughs> we came full circle. We're back to labor. Oh God. Um, in a really interesting way. Yeah. I'd be very suspicious if my employer was like, here's your employee paid chaplain. Um, as a former chaplain myself, that was paid by a nonprofit. Um, if the ships that I were working for were like, well, we hired our own. I'd be so suspicious about like what they were, their presence was even doing on the ships that they were visiting. Or so. it's like if you're in a Zoom call and I was like, okay, everybody light their candle. All right, light your candle, 15 seconds. And any more than 15 seconds, and we're gonna have to stop this because we got to get to work. There's a commodification to it that is just, that I, I can't, obviously can't handle. So we're gonna do an episode about this. We have to find the right guest to come on. Maybe Hillary can come back on. We'll all read, we'll do a reader's theater of that article because it drove me nuts when I read it. Yeah, Hillary, I, one quick thought. We should probably talk to a, a hospital chaplain about this because it's the exact thing. And, and part of their role um, is that they have to give like, spiritual assessments of patients. So the the actual dystopian possibility of all this is that your boss requires you to see this person and then they report to the boss on stuff that you say. Or maybe even um, better. Hillary, I, I was wondering if you had any any notion about how, you know, thinking about on like policy goals, how non-religious voting blocks might be moving in important ways around things like climate change or even, even about stuff like the Prop 22 campaign in, in California, you know, the, that is going to continue to sort of pit the forces of belonging and, and, and political identification against labor and condition, material conditions on the ground. Yeah, I actually, I don't think I have a good question for this yet um, because of our inability to ask questions correctly on surveys because I haven't been able to do the fieldwork component to fill in the gap. So this is probably another conjecture, which I'm sorry about. I think it probably depends on the location of the group that we're looking at. I don't know if there's kind of a national voting block on climate change yet among this religious group, but I think that if you ask a certain group in Seattle that they might have very serious concerns because of some environmental conditions there that are unique to Seattle, same with Michigan. So the ones um, around Michigan and Flint, for instance, I think are a bit more mobilized by the Flint water crisis than other groups in other places. So I think this is an, a situation where it's it's not really mobilizing with climate change on a national scale because it's so easy to ignore something that's happening further away from you, but a lot harder to ignore uh, something happening right in front of you. Um, and I do think that's probably true for most people in the United States um, in that Climate change isn't real until you start seeing the effects. But I don't know if there's been kind of this national mobilization of non-religious folk around this one issue. And I'm not sure if we'll see that happen on the national scale until it's becoming a national crisis, which I would argue it already has. But um, again, not everyone's seeing it that way. But I wish I had a better answer for you, Isaac. Now you're like, you're inspiring me to add questions on my interviews. So thank you. Oh, it's been great. I, I I think this is all really interesting. And and I think the kind of... I guess part of the reason why I asked the question is uh, I wonder how politics and especially, I guess, cultural politics for millennials is going to increasingly be used to sort of wage war on on labor in, in states, uh, especially with you know, gig workers like in California and other things yeah. like that. And so it it's an interesting question of of some of these larger questions of belonging and, and what motivates people. If it if it's helping motivate them into the type of church they choose, then uh, you know, can it help them motivate them into the type of uh 
political choices they make as far as party association and affiliation, but also as like, you know, on specific issues where those things are employed and and sort of attacked as as uh, a way to motivate blocks is, I think, an interesting thing to kind of watch over the next few years. And then they can start asking church leadership uh, if they're paying their uh, clergy and staff livable wages. Based oh on the, man, I, I completely skipped the discourse on that. <laughs> I, I'm just like, I think there's a justice issue there. I, I, I am not, just, just to go on record, I am very happy with my church compensation. But um, I think that, that there's a question that that comes up and a lot of times it's led by clergy, but when it can be led by kind of other people, kind of what you're mentioning, Isaac, I think is going to be important. I would agree. <laughs> Don't know if I have anything else to add. <laughs> Not gonna. That's what I'm good uh, at. Contradict that statement. I'm, I'm I'm a good conversation stopper. So these <laughs> l- luckily we have editors that just like move us right into the next uh, topic. That definitely means you're meant for podcasting. Conversation <laughs> stopping is like the key component of hosting a podcast. I think it means yeah, a level of high intelligence. That's that's what I take it as. People just don't get you, Brian. That's why they don't don't answer your questions. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, <laughs> now that Brian is uh, revealing his inner monologue, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good place to uh, to maybe remind everybody that we live in an apocalyptic age and all takes will be revealed until we get canceled. Hillary, thanks for coming on the bot. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. I just want to do a quick plug for The People's Commentary, which is another project from the Magdalene Podcast Network. Our first episode uh, dropped today in its own feed on all major podcast podcast platforms. It's a commentary on the Book of Ruth with Maria Chavalan Sud, who's an indigenous asylum seeker in the United States from Guatemala. She um, talks about her story of migration and the way it relates to the, story, the Book of Ruth. She talks a ton about... Um, Mayan culture and and the really awesome thing about the commentary is that it's an indigenous commentary on the book of Ruth and Maria is joined by um, Donna who is a Filipino uh, immigration activist in Charlottesville Virginia and a lapsed Catholic and I sort of shepherd the conversation in between the two and it it's uh, gonna drop every week for the next few weeks so please check that out in its own feed the people's commentary from the Magdalene podcast network we hope you enjoy that.